This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, well, this is take number three. <laughs> and it's a shame because we have, for the first time in 2020, live in the studio, the big man himself. Firstly, I'm Scott Phillips, but more importantly, the doctor is in the house. Dr. Anirban Mahanti, you are back. Welcome back, sir. Welcome. It looks like I'm back and the you know the gremlins have taken over. I, all I'm saying is there is a correlation between your arrival and the fact that this is how our th- <laughs> this is our third take. So look, you know, normally normally this podcast is supposed to be professional and pretend nothing's gone wrong, but there's no fun in that. So we'll we'll let you a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. We just spent an hour chatting, which was a wonderful conversation, which I enjoyed thoroughly. And then <laughs> about five minutes before the end, as we were wrapping up. Our producer, Will, said, uh, uh, stop, guys, the system's gone down. We lost the entire thing. So then we recorded a second take. Well, we started to record a second take. We got a few minutes into that, and the guys came back in the studio and said, stop, stop, we found the old file, everything's okay. And that was corrupted. <laughs> so we are starting this podcast. If we're a bit punch drunk by the end, that's the excuse why. If we're wonderful, then forget you heard any of this. And uh, welcome to Motley Full Money. Doc, most importantly, mate, welcome back. It's good to be in the same room with you. For the first time in 2020, we've had a couple of pre-recorded and a couple of special guest podcasts, which were pretty well received with Warren Hogan and Eliza Owen. Uh, almost rhyme, but uh, not, not deliberate. So that's kind of, that was kind of cool. We enjoyed that. Now, listeners seem to enjoy it as well, but the band's back together. We're here, we're in the room, and we're ready to kick off 2020 in, well, I was going to say in style, the first couple of takes. Well, maybe we'll get better with age. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> practice. Practice makes us perfect. <laughs> if this episode sucks, it hasn't helped us. If it does, if it's great, then uh, maybe we should we should uh, pre-record a couple of ones <laughs> instead. So the third, third version of every podcast and we'll be uh, well and truly on our way. That's all about the uh, seamless smoke and mirrors, right? Of course. Oh, dear. Now, good news is this week we have a lot to talk about. So... We heard during the week a very well-known, very well-regarded hedge fund manager. Now, often those terms of well-regarded and well-known and hedge fund manager are oxymorons, but uh, but they're not in this case. Ray Dalio was the head of Bridgewater Associates. He's effectively said words that, um, well, let me put words in his mouth for a second, but with the same theme, if you hold cash, you're an idiot, or at least that's largely what he said. Now, he wasn't directing this exactly at Warren Buffett, but Buffett's got $128 billion worth of it, so... Someone is going to be wrong. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the rate cuts that, well, the chances of which have gone down a little bit after some good economic news, which is nice. Speaking of, well, economic news or, or lack thereof, Kaufland, the big European retailer, was going to open in Australia and now has gone home with its tail, at least figuratively, between its legs. And as always, mate, we are going to dip into the bulging, very big, very heavy, very full, I'm going to do a massage after dragging it up the stairs, Motley Fool Mailbag. So I've got a big episode, mate, for your first one back in my first one again, 2020. Shall we get into it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right. Mate, let's pretend we haven't had this conversation <laughs> before. before. Let's, uh, let's just, let's just uh, assume we've just walked into the studio and go. Um, <laughs> so, so, mate, look, Ray Dalio, so as I mentioned, head of Bridgewater Associates, he has correctly, I'll put it in air quotes, called the last couple of big economic corrections. Um, now, maybe he's lucky, maybe he's smart, maybe somewhere in between, but in any case, he's very well regarded. More importantly for his customers, he's made a fortune for himself and for his clients. And he's also, well, and Bridgewater is a very strange company, mate. I, you know this, but if our listeners aren't aware, Bridgewater has this thing called radical transparency where all of its internal meetings are videoed. They they record every decision made and every decision made by every individual person is kind of then subjected to, 
you know, scrutiny and and um, it's a, it look. <laughs> He calls it a meritocracy, and I guess it's hard to argue with that. It seems pretty brutal to me, I've got to say. Pretty pretty kind of harsh way to, to, to make a living, but it seems to work for them, so maybe there's something to it. I don't know I'd want to work there. More importantly than all that, though, mate, given his profile, he's effectively said, look, if you own cash, you're an idiot. And as I said at the, at the top, Buffett holds $128 billion worth of it, so someone's going to be really right here and someone's going to be really wrong. Before we get into the, the death match between the two billionaires, Mate, why is Dalio saying that holding cash is a bad move right now for investors? Well, I, I think as you know, as we have already discussed, <laughs> but <laughs> we'll try to do that too many times. Uh, through the we'll, we'll not try to do that too many times. But you know, it's a very interesting question because if we look around the world and we see sort of the current economic setup, right? And when I say economic, I mean you know, economic growth. I mean sort of the the central bank policies and things like that. Right. Inflation, uh, you know, jobs growth, unemployment, so on so so forth. If we look at everything around us, the we are in a we're in a climate where debt is cheap, right? So, interest rates set by central banks all around is pretty low, right? It's you know maybe zero point five, maybe zero point seven five, maybe even minus point two five, right? It's <laughs> hard to say any of those numbers are, are high when it comes to interest rates. <laughs> yeah, well, it you know goes negative. I mean, I don't know what else can, we can see. So, if that's the situation, then you can expect that if you leave money in a savings account, you're making nothing. If you make leave money in a term deposit lock it away for three to six months, you're going to make nothing. Mm. If you're going to invest in uh, in a government bond, which is going to pay you an interest every six months or a year or whatever, you're going <laughs> yeah. to also make nothing. Right. You can move up the, the chain in terms of, you know, you can invest in some bonds issued mm. by, you know, by high quality companies, or you'll make something which will be pretty close to nothing. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Mate, you're not for the first podcast back. You're not exactly painting a, a wonderfully bright. Well, well, I'm, I'm just I'm help just, us out. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just being very, very like truthful here. You are. You I, are. I, I, I feel like you know we need to be really transparent. We are always transparent, but we I'm are. being very, very, very transparent. Well, transparent, kind of a bit. A bit of a downer, mate. Can you, well, can you bring you, it back uh, up for me? Okay. Well, would you want to make more money and <laughs> a little bit more money than you I, yes, could? Yes, I, I categorically you, want to make a lot yeah, of money. You could invest in <laughs> riskier, uh, you know, uh, bonds. You could own bonds of com- countries that go out of business, which is basically they go bankrupt. Or you could own, you know, very They're high risk, you know, very high risk. You can make slightly more money, right? But that's the kind of environment. There's like little or no inflation. There's some economic growth. Right. Debt is, you know, debt is cheap and there's a lot of debt as well, right? So when you're talking about government debt, a lot of governments, you know, some governments have a lot of debt. Some countries have, you know, individuals a lot of debt. Yeah. Right. And if in that situation you can't, you know, the, the setup is such that it seems like the debt, this, it's as unlikely that the interest rates are going to go up because if it goes up, well, then we've got other problems. So if in that circumstances, the low interest rate is a nice setup for companies to borrow, invest, grow, create new jobs, right. open new industries. Which is exactly why the central banks are doing this, right? They're trying to make us, make them, go and do something with their money. Don't leave it in the bank, you're getting nothing for it. 
for the love of God, go on, try, try, try and build something. Create some economic activity somewhere. Yeah, so, you know, build stuff, do things. Right, right. You know, whether it's building roads or building new companies, <laughs> do stuff. Uh, so in that setup, I think it you, basically the central banks are saying they're pushing you up what, what I'll call the risk spectrum. Yeah, right. And, and you know, one, right, way, right, right. one way to participate and, you know, well, one way to participate is make new companies. Not everybody's going to build new companies or, you know, not everybody's going to, you know, build the road. But you could uh, partake on shares in those businesses that do, which is, you know, which is exactly why stocks are attractive. And I think that's kind of the thing that I think Ray Dalio is saying that, well, in, the, in this setup, you know, owning cash basically means you're, it's, it's to some extent, like, you know, you're basically hoping for the market to tank. You're basically trying to time the market. The um, the situation is such that, you know, there's a lot of economic growth possible or new new opportunities possible because of all the free cash that's an easy cash that's available. And therefore, maybe that's the place you want to be. And, and I think that makes sense. And I, I kind of agree with him. Yeah, it's it's it might sound hard, but I think he is he's he's right to say that, you know, given this this if you want any return, then the returns are gonna come for riskier assets and you know, for example, stocks are one of them. Nice. I, I think that's and that's kind of the key point, right? I think you, you talk about the central banks are absolutely trying to push companies up the respect and they're trying to get them to spend the money, invest the money rather than leave it in the bank. They're kind of trying to make us do the same thing, or at least they're giving us no choice but to do it, as you rightly point out. If you're a retiree, frankly, even if you're not retired, but you simply want to make the most of your money, I mean <laughs> I remember a time when I started saving. So way back in the day, mate, when TV was in black and white and there were horses and carts around the place, I put my money into an. Uh, well, I was always an online savings account, weirdly enough, which is a sign of the times. I put it into a passbook savings account. I got my I can vividly remember this. I got my little little green passbook. I was at the State Bank and State Building Society in New South Wales back in the day, and a little green passbook. And I had to sign my name in it. I got dressed to Master Scott Phillips. I felt very big and very, uh, very mature, very responsible. And I was getting like seven and a half percent interest. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's probably partly responsible for me actually being an investor, getting the interest, kind of seeing the value of that. Now, I don't know what kids these days are going to get out of it because you're getting nothing for cash in the bank. But you know, those days are past. If I want to get a return. Again, to Dalio's point, they're pretty much saying, look, you can't be passive. You can't take no or little risk because you're simply not going to get a return for it. If you're going to make anything with your money, you've got to be investing, we would say, in the share market. I don't know if he's that specific, but he's basically saying that you've got to put your money to work in in what, in theory, are considered riskier assets. And I guess they are by definition. If you've got government-guaranteed cash in the bank, everything's riskier than that. So that's absolutely true. But I don't know it's necessarily high risk. The, the, the reality, is, as I said, is that's the... That's the scenario, right? And so he's saying you should use the cash. Now, I've got to get you to compare that then with my good mate and yours, Warren Buffett, who, who, if not directly disagreeing, certainly isn't in any hurry, at least doesn't seem to be in any hurry, to put 128 billion US dollars to work. And there's frankly, the rate he's getting cash, man, I reckon he must be, I want to say half a billion a week is probably amassing, which is phenomenal when you think about the money flowing in his bank account. But he's not spending it. He, he, he says he hasn't got, the opportunities simply aren't there. On the other hand, Dalio is saying, get out there and invest. Who's right and who's wrong? Or well, maybe I don't have to ask you knowing your view on Buffett. But... Well, I mean, you know, as, as I've put out on Twitter, if you won't uh, Berkshire they shares over the last decade, you've lost to the S&P 500. It's not a nice place to be. Yeah. Um, and, and I think part of that problem is exactly that, that he's, you've amassed all this cash and he's not really spending it. Yeah. Um, what I find really ironic about that is in some sense, this is the... I mean, what is he really waiting for, right? Is he waiting for 
um, at the perfect crash or the perfect opportunity. Well, but we also know that that's waiting for the perfect opportunity is basically like it's, it's a form of market timing, which he has always mm. said we shouldn't be doing, mm. right? Um, on the other hand, it you know one could say, well, you know, I don't find I'm not finding any opportunities, but the problem I have with that type of argument is that maybe there are no opportunities in that specific um, group or sector or type of things that he looks for, mm. right? And, uh, you know, so like the blue chip value growth, you know, somewhere in the, you know, blue chip growth with at a reasonable price. Now, maybe... Here's, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I should not not be throwing shade at Warren Buffett. This is a very <laughs> risky thing to do. Um, Mate, if you get it wrong, I will remind you. You know that, don't you? Uh, yeah, but, uh, well, 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 I'll take the risk. Uh, uh, as, as Ray Dalio says, take some risks. Yeah. There you go. Oh, there you go. I like that. So, so, so I'm taking the risk. <laughs> Here, the, I think the problem might be that to mm. some extent, now, with the benefit of hindsight, 2013, 2012, 2010, you know, 20, 2009, mm. 2010 were awesome times to buying buying stuff, right? right. Including things that, you know, um, they might have passed on because they were actually really cheap in yeah. with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. And then part of the problem is exactly what you said, that, you know, maybe 30 years back and then, you know, uh, I'm just making you look old here, but you're, you're not old actually. <laughs> um, but, but you know, if you, if you look back in time, you'd say, well, you know, 20 years back, the PEs used to be, a P being the, you know, price to earnings, I'm just simplifying, horribly simplifying here, but, you know, price to earnings on average used to be 18. Mm. Well, but at that time, inflation was X and maybe right. inflation was like 3% and interest rates were probably like 7%. Well, well, today inflation is like not two percent; it's like one percent, maybe, maybe one and a half percent, and you know interest rates is like zero, hmm. right? So you got to adjust for that. And I think a lot of things have changed over 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 you know the last twenty thirty years. The internet did not exist hmm. in its current form thirty years. Like I, I think that itself is a huge step change, um, which I think needs to be factored into investing, right? So I think, you, you know, the averages are good. You know, as, as they say, history uh, sort of, uh, you know, it doesn't repeat, but it kind of rhymes. Um, so using that as a framework, I think it, it is hard. It may be hard to find similar type of investments, but, you know, I think maybe the investing approach needs to change to some extent. So that's, that's I think, that, that's that would be my, you know, as I keep saying that I think if, if, if Buffett continues on the current approach, I think the next decade too, he's going to lose to the market. Mm. Um the other thing, if I have to defend Buffett, I think I'd say one thing. It, it is probably hard to invest $130, $140 billion or you know, $160 billion Australian. Right, right. You can't find that many liquid businesses. You know, I mean, he's basically limited to buying, you know, I can buy maybe 10% of Apple and maybe 10% yeah, or 20% right. of, yeah. uh, of Amazon. But what happens is if he buys 10% of, say, Apple, the Apple's share price is going to go up because yeah. he bought it and therefore it becomes harder for him to actually buy. So, I mean, you know, maybe there's those sort of dynamics at, at play um, that it becomes. And then, you know, a lot, you know, if you look, if you look at the amount of cash, you could pretty much buy mm. almost all of the small companies on the ASX as an example, right? So that, that I think, reflects trouble in deploying large amounts of cash. Then um, that might be a problem. And it's a bigger problem if you have your, I guess, your, what he would call circle of competence, which limits the number of stocks you can, or the number, number of stocks you can actually apply his wisdom on. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that those might be the, might be the reasons. 
Um, I mean, the, if a very simple approach might be to just buy back his own stock. If he thinks his own stock is undervalued, mm. then he could have bought back or maybe pay a dividend, right? Those are my free advisors to Warren Buffett. <laughs> as soon as free he acts advice. on... You as, free advice now. No, no, no. There's a caveat there. Okay. As soon as he acts on it, I expect a check. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see. All okay. No, it wasn't the old uh, free quotation, right? If you, you want the quote, I'll give you the quote. If you take the action, you want to get paid for it. Exactly. What's your, what's your fee these days? 1%, 2%? Oh, uh, with, with Buffett's kind of money, I might even do it for like 0.5%. <laughs> That's very generous of you. <laughs> I'm very generous. I'm usually very when, generous. When you get your fleet of Teslas, at least let me have a drive of one, okay? Uh, if he gives me 0.5, I'll give you a Tesla. Oh, hey, there we go. <laughs> That's a promise. Good thing is, well, I was going to say the good thing is it's recorded on the podcast, but frankly, after the last, <laughs> after this morning, it might not be. It's being recorded, whether it, whether it makes it to air. Look, if you're listening to this, as Paul and Hanson would say, we're actually alive. So that's a, well, she didn't say that, but you know, you get the idea. Let's move on. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy. So let's, let's go, let's say macro a little bit here and let's bring it back to Australia. Good news during the week that the jobs numbers were better than were expected. The AFI headline quite vividly was jobs data torches February rate cut forecasts. That's quite nice. I like that. The good news, well, I suppose it's all good news, really. I mean, the nicest thing that could happen to the economy is we don't have any more rate cuts because it isn't required unless you want lower rates, in which case, you know, we're all mortgage, most of us have a mortgage. So that'd be, that'd be welcome. Uh, sometimes you've got to be careful what you wish for, though, right? The cheaper mortgage might come with more economic trouble. So we want to be a little bit careful than, frankly, higher house prices. I'm sure you'll mention house prices. I'll go in first this time. There you go. Um, <laughs> I, I, so, I noticed that. <laughs> so I've got to ask you, mate. Originally, there was a 50% chance of a rate cut in February. Now it's 30%, so it's less likely than more. Mm. You know, one chance in, well, three chances in 10. Mm. Um, so probably not going to happen unless the RBA sees need for it. Of course, lots going on in the economy. Jeans West, you know, administration, Harris Scarf last year in administration, natural disasters around the place. I'm just curious, you know, you're back in the country. What do you what do you make of how the economy is poised, how the RBA might be thinking, and frankly, the, the chances of a rate cut or economic trouble down the pike? Well, you know, like, okay, so on a, on a database, I think this is an improvement, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we went from, what, 5.2%, I'm making up the number, or I think the number was 5.2% to 5.1%, which is an improvement. It is. Which is, which is great, right? And, you know, inflation is still very low. Um, unemployment, the target for mm. uh, the Reserve Bank is about 4.5%. So we have, we have some ways from there, but we are getting towards that destination point. Mm. So that that is good. And maybe what the RBA is thinking is that if we get to 4.5%, then there'll be some wage growth and stuff like that that's yeah, going to right. start kicking in. And, 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 and that'll be all good. I, I think this is, this is great. And therefore... Uh, expecting a rate cut, uh, you know, as 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 the expectations have mm. you know gone down, and rightfully so, um, that you know that we probably don't need a rate cut. Is is the economy really at a great place? I mean, um, you know, but it's it's okay. I wouldn't say I I don't think it's in a great place, but I don't think it's in a bad place either. It's 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 okay, and and um, and and therefore there is this question that you know what is going to happen. Uh, for you know, in May, for example, is the people are think that there's going to be a rate cut, and and they, you know, if I think about it, a couple of weeks back, or you know, until yesterday, for example, I thought that the you know the fires were behind us, but right. but uh, apparently not, right? Yeah. I mean, the fires are not behind us. What we don't know is what's going to happen from, um, you know, the the bushfires. The bushfires have mm. clearly affected 
the local economies of those places where the bushfires have been very active, right? But the, the, what we don't know is what's the sort of, you know, the flow-on effects, right? For example, our insurance companies paying up the insurance, if they're delaying paying the insurance, what's happening? If the insurance companies are raising the cost of insurance, I'm just using insurance, and I'm not trying to bag insurance as, yeah, as yeah. anything else, but I'm just using that as an example. If if the insurance companies are raising the insurance on, on you know, insuring properties or insuring houses, insuring businesses in these places, mm. that has an effect on what sort of economic activity is going to happen there. You know, think about tourism, you know, how, how comfortable are people? You know, people who have booked their trips probably are coming, but people who were thinking of booking probably are seeing, oh, I don't want to go to this place, right? Right now, this seems too dangerous, too smoky, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of these flaw-on activities, and this is going to continue... I guess, impacting us for some time. Now, the mm. problem is how long is it going to continue impacting us? It's really hard to say because, as I said, I thought most of the bad news was behind us. Well, clearly I was wrong. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the RBA probably has got much better forecasters, but, you know, they should really appoint me to be in their forecasting <laughs> because... So, hang on, uh, you want a job with... You, you want some money from Warren Buffett, now you want a job at the RBA? I just I just take money from everywhere I can. Like, I mean, you know... <laughs> if the there's, work, yeah, and for, forecasting, it. How, how hard is it? You just <laughs> just flip a coin. You you got a you'd, forecast. Be, you'd be just as good with the uh, RBA dartboard as I Oh, exactly. Right? Everybody's got a dartboard, so <laughs> I just want in on the dartboard. Um, so if yeah, so I think you know, I think there's always a chance of like okay. Here's the thing, right? There's always a chance of a rate cut because the well, the RBA is having a meeting. There's always a chance. Yeah, there's that. Mm, there's well, a, on the same <laughs> argument, there's always a chance of a rate increase. Then rate increase too. Well, there's never going to be a rate increase. <laughs> never. <laughs> well, a long time. Well, well, I mean, if you look at the amount of debt we have got floating around, I mean, how, how do you think the rate is going to increase? Yeah. Right? You know, the rate can't increase uh, substantially at least. Not a lot. Not quickly. No. In not a lot, not quickly. It can't because if it does, the, you know, uh, we'd have delinquencies <laughs> of pretty rapid rate. Yeah. So I think that's the state we are. That's why I said, you know, we're not in a we're not in a great place. We're not, probably not in a bad place either. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, I think it's it's encouraging uh, given the bad, and it's encouraging actually. This number has gone up in t- in terms of um, uh, the un- the employment rates and so on um, in this current circumstances because it gives us a little bit of maybe a buffer to deal with. Yeah. So that's good. I think that's the interesting thing. I've got to say, like for all of the for all of the potential bad news, the longer we can go. Well, I mean, we'd all like faster growth, right? But to the extent that people are earning a bit more, putting money away or paying down debt, I mean, there's the, the kind of national balance sheet is slowly improving if we can avoid some sort of massive problem, right? And that, that's that's the good news. If you do have a big house price crash, a big economic crash, then, of course, all bets are off. We're going to try and work out what's going on. The good, so the good thing is, at least to the extent that we can delay the inevitable, we're in a better position to deal with it if and when it does turn up. So I guess I'll take, I'll take that uh, for what it's worth. But it's not necessarily the easiest thing, right? We were just trying to do a soft landing, right? Mm. Soft landings are hard. Mm-mm. I look in terms of you, you talk about interest rates, talk about unemployment. I guess they're 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 interesting. The other issue, and I mentioned this at the top of the show, with all of that economic data going on, we also saw a retail non-starter during the week. Real money advice from real people, not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, mate, in terms of <laughs> in terms of abortive kind of attempts at something, this is probably the biggest one I've seen in a little while. The good news might well be that they avoided worse pain. Um, I'm reminded of the Masters debacle when Woolies started getting the hardware and then had to kind of pull out with its tail between its legs and wasted a squillion dollars in the process. So not quite that bad, but at least they gave it a go. In this case, the European retailer Kaufland was... Going to open in Australia, it had bought allegedly 
up to half a billion dollars worth of property, or at least, I don't know if I bought a lease, but in any case, a large amount of property. Um, it was supposed to, so this is the this is the kind of Aldi equivalent, close enough to, differences, but for our purposes, we'll call them roughly the same. It was going to open in Australia and be the next big force, it hoped, anyway, in Australian retail. It was going to put, you know, bring the challenge to the to the incumbents and Aldi to some degree, Costco. Um, it really was going to shake up the retail industry. In fact, when it decided to pull out, the shares of Woolies and Coles jumped 3% on the news. So it tells you what investors were thinking about both the, the risk of it turning up and then, frankly, the relief when it went away. But I've got to ask you, mate, I don't remember the last time that a company invested half a billion dollars for something that didn't actually end up happening. They've pretty much said, look, yeah, no, we're, we're going home. What's going on? Well, it's fascinating. Well, the, the, well, a couple of things are going on here. Number one, they did not consult me. So, um, <laughs> so you'll like, be a retail consultant. As, man, you come back. You come back full of uh, advice, which is good. Well, but you know, Warren Buffett is not consulting me. The RBA is not consulting <laughs> me. Coughlin, all these people are not Ray consulting. Dalio didn't call it, or did he? Well, Ray, Ray Dalio and I are on the same page. Your mouthpiece, so, is that what you're saying? So we are on the same page. Oh, okay. at least. So he probably doesn't yet need my advice. But <laughs> um, what can I say? Well, you know, here's here's the thing. I, um, I'm going to say it, I'm going to talk about the bright side of Coughlin's adventures. Right? Think okay. of it this way. Coughlin came, yes. they signed up half a billion dollars of leases. There's probably some lease break fee and all that stuff, you know. So we actually made some economic activity in Australia <laughs> from somebody else's uh, failure to consult me. They came, so, and they came and donated some money to the Australian economy that went home. Is that what I love saying? that. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, if they had consulted me, I would tr- truthfully told them that <laughs> you're trying to foray into a very difficult territory. Um, now, that being said, I mean, Aldi's made a decent headway. They're not exactly the biggest, most successful retail in the country, but they've done a pretty good job at, at creating a space for themselves. Was it really going to be that hard for Calflin to come and do the same? Well, you know, here's the thing, right? So I draw an analogy here between what, what's, what's say, happening in Canada, right? So Canada is a you know, lar- larger population-wise to Australia, but there's, there's, there's similarities uh, in, in the type of economies we operate, the type of banking sector we have got, mm. and, and so on. So if you look at, if you look at the grocers in Canada, they, they've got basically a, super, a chain called Superstore and a chain called Safeway. They've basically got two, and, you know, and, then, and there's Walmart, which does some grocery as well. Right. Um, but there's really nothing else to offer. And I think, you know, one of the things there to think about is grocery as a business is, is a pretty capital intensive business. You know, you, mm. you need space, you need to store stuff. So you've large, you've got a large fixed investment and you're going to basically making money after you recoup your investment, right? So you need scale. Then, mm. um, it, it, there's only so much profit here that can probably go around mm. and giving it up across three people probably makes sense. If you try to divide it across four, maybe it doesn't, you know, like, I mean, you know, there's milk at $1 versus milk at 70 cents. Nobody's going to be making money. Um, so I think that might have been the reality. The competition probably would have been brutal. Um, and yeah, like, I mean, you know, maybe they realized that, mm. the, you know, the market just doesn't offer the opportunity for a fourth uh, strong force. Now, from a consumer point of view, of course, if there was a fourth strong force, there's, you know, more choices, more options, maybe better, you know, more range of stuff that we can buy. All those are great things. But, you know, Woolworth's revenue really hasn't changed much over the last five years. Its right. earnings hasn't changed much over the last five years. So it's really hard to see mm. how someone thought that this is the greatest place to expand and create new opportunities in grocery, right? I, I kind of get that, except what I'm surprised about is this is not a small group of people. Um, they're not new to the market. They're not. This is not some VC-backed hopes and dreams mob. They should have. I mean, either, either come to Australia because of an opportunity, or don't come because of no opportunity. But to turn up, not even open, and then go home. 
I, I, I'm, I've got to say, I'm really staggered. Like, I, I would have, if they put a, you know, what do they call those things? The, the government agencies, the, uh, the studies that are supposed to look at the probability of these things, uh, feasibility study. That's what they call feasibility studies. Into, you know, should we open Australia? They spend a year doing it. Say, no, no, I'm not going to do it and go home. I get that. I get opening, trying for a couple of years, five years, and then going, okay, this isn't working. Let's go home. What I don't get is committing to the whole thing, and then not doing it. I, I, I'm trying to work out. What changed? Now, there was some allegation in the AFR today, and I'll say allegation six times to avoid the lawyers calling me, um, that maybe some suppliers had colluded to not supply them, uh, maybe under some pressure from the big supermarkets. It's a juicy story. We'll wait to see if it's real or not. Um, but just, I just want to kind of understand what exactly <laughs> is, you know, why... why so, I, again, I get them not coming, but why would you announce it, turn up, spend half a billion dollars, and then walk away? Well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, so um, our uh, very good uh, competition commissioner is already on it. Um, so that that is good, and I, and I, and, I, and I, I love that the fact that you know he's out there, Rod Simmons is out there trying to you know basically saying, oh look, if there's something like this has happened, come and complain. Um, he's all for uh, you know good competition in Australia, and I think that's very useful from a consumer point of view. So uh, again, we we really don't know. Like I mean, here's the thing, right? Maybe they went on this journey and they initially did a feasibility study and they found maybe it works. And then they started doing it and they said, oh, the costs are adding up and it really is not making sense. And somebody basically decided, well, you know, maybe it's not worth it. That that could be one version of it, right? Another version could be that, yes, suppliers, um, you know, maybe they couldn't get the deals that they wanted to get with the suppliers and, then, and, you know, and that didn't work out. What I find surprising about that argument is that yes, mm. there are there are things like fruit and dairy and you know like local produce that you would need supplier ag- agreement and arrangements with. But there's a lot of stuff is international, right? I mean, you know, if you want to get Kellogg's, well, Kellogg's is Kellogg's, and I'm sure they they probably have a relationship with Kellogg's in uh, in in Europe, right? So I mean, you should be able to leverage. And if your business is big big enough in 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 Europe, you mm. probably have, you know, you probably have those relationships with Kellogg's and you know Procter and Gamble and whoever else, right? Right, right? Half of the things, what half? Probably like 50, 60, 70% of these things are actually international brands that you probably, you know, you find the same things in Australia that you find in, you know, France, that you find in America, right? So, um, you know, other than the avocado mm. being like local to us. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there's a certain segment of things that, you know, you... So I just find that part, but maybe the local... Um, local producers, you know, were told something. I don't know. Again, this is all alleged. But it could be any combination of things. Mm-hmm. But again, it's, it's interesting. I don't, you know, I personally find of having three, it's a lot of choice for groceries. Like, I mean, how many different types of bread am I going to buy, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's, uh, I, suppose, <laughs> I suppose that's fair. I still, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm seeing, maybe I'm seeing, uh, problems that don't exist but I, just, I, I still find it bizarre I, I, I don't know if there's changes at Calflin's head office changes in strategy if there is something with the suppliers here but I, I, there's got to be there's got to be another story behind this one maybe maybe this time next week we'll find out hey yeah maybe alright good news mate what is the good news mailbag time woohoo we do love our mailbag I know you love the mailbag. I love the mailbag. Our listeners seem to love the mailbag, given the amount of the amount of correspondence we've received over the last few weeks. Frankly, it's our fault for not recording a live episode for quite a while. So we now have one. While I uh, while I'm on the topic, though, yeah, look, the only thing better than a full mailbag is an even fuller one. So if you want to get in contact with us, we really would appreciate you taking the the time. If you've got a question, a comment, some feedback, frankly, anything you want to hear us talk about on the show. 
Um, I say this all the time, mate, and hopefully people are sick of me saying it because if that's true, it means I've said it enough. If they're not, then I'm going to hear it. They're going to hear it again. Um, this, you know, I mean, we, we, we don't have to do this podcast. We do it because we love it. We do it because we want to help people. And the best way to help people is to know exactly what we can do for you, our listeners. So if you would do us the favor of getting in touch, if you have a question, a comment, some feedback, some suggestions, we'd well and truly appreciate it. How, you will ask? I'm glad you did ask because here is the answer. Maybe the best place to hit us up is on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, not everyone is, but I love Twitter, Doc. I, I mean, look, it, well, Twitter is great. It can be a bit of a sore sometimes, quite frankly. It's um, full of vitriol and, you know, we get the occasional trolls speaking personally, but also that they're around. We know that. Um, but it gives us a chance to kind of correspond with you in a way that we otherwise couldn't. So Twitter, you can hit Doc at, at Anirban Mahanti, or you can get me at TMF Scott P. TMF for the Motley Fool, so TMF Scott P. Or you can hit us up on our corporate account, which is at the Motley Fool AU. They're the best three ways to get us on Twitter. If you are on Instagram, my new fa- my new favorite platform, because it makes me feel slightly less old, Doc, to be fair. Like the cool kids are on the Instagram, and so I'd like to be there too. It's what's his name? Liam Hensworth is on Instagram, and Miley Cyrus is on Instagram, and the real housewives of whichever country we're up to now are probably on there too. Is that right? I'm trying to keep up. Well, I don't know who else. I am on it. Everybody should follow me. That's all I know. You're not on Instagram, though, dude. Oh, no, I'm not on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so jump on jump on Instagram. But, hey, or hit. Instagram is Zuck, Zuck Doc, Forum. See, Doc almost, he was in, I, I reckon, okay, here's what we're going to do. 2020 is the year, listeners, fellow fools. How about we start a campaign to get Doc on Instagram? Hit us up on Instagram or hit him up on Twitter and say, mate, come on. Uh, how many, how many, how many, uh, Listener comments would you need, mate, to get you on Instagram? Could well, we- if every listener is uh, is going to promise that they're going to, you know, have an iPhone or buy a new iPhone, then I'll consider it. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is about Instagram, not about Apple. Oh, it has to be. There has to be something for me in it, right? I mean, the love of helping out, of serving our loyal listeners. But they'll be helping Zuckberg on that, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's you know, the, I, it's not, I still, I reckon I'm going to start a campaign. I reckon I'm going to get it shot. Here, there you go. But, you know, Instagram by, by the end of the year. That's my, that's my campaign. Well, buy an iPhone, and you know, then you get a like, you know, for me to be on Instagram. <laughs> We'll see. <laughs> Hit us up on Instagram. I'm again at TMF Scott P. Doc is at, oh, sorry, Doc's not on there. The Motley Fools account is at The Motley Fool AU. Or you can get us on Facebook. The Motley Fools account is The Motley Fool Australia, surprisingly enough. And I'm Scott Phillips Money, all one word. And of course, if you want to use the uh, old fashioned, these days, old fashioned way of email, you can email us at info at fool.com.au. That's all of our socials and a little bit of email. Please get in touch. We love hearing from you. We love interacting with you. Uh, I've even got a Facebook message while we've been recording this podcast, mate. That's how uh, that's how real time we're doing it. Uh, John, thank you for your Facebook message while we've been while we've been recording. The first question, well, the first comment, really. This is a bit of a, a bit of a shout out. So I posted a, a, a comment on or a, a post on Facebook during the week, and uh, and one of our listeners, Jay Green, replied, and I hit the like button as you're supposed to do on Facebook. That's what the cool kids do, apparently. And Jay replied, getting a like off the man. Love your podcast, Scott. Feel free to give me a shout-out this Friday so I can brag to the boss about it. Well, there you go, Jay. Here's your shout-out. And Jay's boss, Jay reliably informs me it was his boss who got him onto the podcast in the first place. So thank you both for listening. Jay, here's your shout-out. And uh, Jay's boss, A, thank you. And B, I reckon Jay deserves a raise. Don't you, Doc? Yeah, of course. Why not? So, Jay, let us know whether your boss comes good with the raise. Uh, By the same token, maybe you owe him or her a bit for uh, putting you onto the podcast. I'll let you guys organize that. We'll step back from that, start the fight, then walk away. Jay, g'day, and Jay's boss, thanks for listening. Mate, let's get back on the real questions. Uh, The first one here is, oh, it's an Insta question, mate. My favorite type. (laughs) 
I, I am <laughs> I am irrationally happy when I get an Instagram question, I have to say. it's There's something about the kind of... It makes me feel just a little bit less uncool than I am, which frankly wouldn't be too hard. I'm that uncool, but it's just, you know, it's, it's Instagram. It's the, you know, the gram, the Insta, the the the, the, the thing, the stuff, you know? Anyway, uh, this one comes from, uh, handle is at the real Malibu Jones. I'm not sure what that person's name is. Maybe they're Malibu, maybe they're Jones. Maybe it's just a, a handle. At the real Malibu Jones says, G'day, Scott and Doc. Question for the podcast, which is a very splendid one. I think that's the first time we've been called splendid. I love splendid. Splendid is awesome. Isn't it lo- I, it's quite a nice word too. It's got a, a summery, flowery kind of nice vibe to it. And I like this Malibu uh, handle as well. Real Malibu Jones. I wonder yeah. who the fake Malibu Jones is. Is there a fake one around your Well, maybe, maybe if I go on Instagram, <laughs> that's what I'm going to use, the fake Malibu Jones. There you go, Malibu Jones. You've got a, you've got a, a, a follower and a, an impersonator. <laughs> Doc is going to moonlight as the fake Malibu Jones. All right, let's move on. Uh, the real Malibu Jones says, with BlackRock dumping thermal coal, would you consider these stocks as a value play over the next three to five years? Or should you steer well clear? Keep up the foolery. Thanks. Well, thank you, the real Malibu Jones, for the question. Um, now, just to give us a bit of context for this one, BlackRock is the world's largest fund manager. And the CEO, Larry Fink, came out was it this week or last week? It might have been last week, I think. Um, and said that BlackRock is henceforth dumping any company that gets more than 25% of its profits or revenue, I can't remember which profits, I assume, from thermal coal. Now, the interesting, of course, about the whole climate thing, and he's uh, the company's saying, look, it's not really climate as such. It's not climate kind of activism, but they're saying that you know climate risk is now investment risk, and they're simply not prepared to take that risk of owning companies that do business in thermal coal. Now, thermal coal used for electricity production as opposed to metallurgical coal, which, if you haven't been looking, is used for steel making. So, again, that kind of coal climate investment angle, and again, they're saying, look, this is not this is not you know what trying to feel good here. There's not a green thing. This is purely about the investment angle. That being said. If BlackRock's getting out, does it provide an opportunity for investors who are maybe with a bit of a contrarian bent, mate? If everyone's selling, is it the right time to buy? So first of all, I'll say this. I love the question. I love the question because I love the thinking here that, you know, if, if people are running away from something and the valuation is crashing, if the valuation is crashing, then that might be an opportunity for the astute investor. Now, um, Doc, what you're really trying to say here is you've avoided mentioning Warren Buffett, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let you give him some credit here because he famously says you should be greedy when others are fearful. And that's exactly what the real Malibu Jones is suggesting might be an opportunity here. So I'll let you credit Uncle Warren as you go, Pop. Well, no, Uncle Uncle Warren is definitely right there. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, I give Uncle Uncle Warren credit where it is totally due. not enough. Well, I'm pragmatic. I give him credit. (laughs) I can't give him credit for beating the market when he hasn't, right? You know what I mean? Like, I I can't do it. Sniping from the side. Anyway, my apologies. That was a massive (laughs) tangent. Keep keep going. Okay. So that said, here's here's my issue is I'm, I'm... uh, I'm definitely not um, a, a, you know, like a mining investor. And, and I, I say that because every mining investment I've ever made has actually been a loss for me. Oh, dear. Um, and <laughs> I've given up basically on it because it's it's actually very hard, largely because you need you need to understand mining cycle. Mm. You need to understand, because here's the problem, right? With, with, with Even with this thermal coal thing, it really depends on the demand for thermal coal, right? Now, if everybody, if there are going to be lots of plants built which are going to be using thermal coal, then great. You know, demand is going to go up, you know, and, and demand goes up and therefore the cost 
is likely to go up as well. Mm. Um, it, and there's a fixed cost for, I guess, um, extracting this thing and therefore you're going to be make more money. But if world over people decide that, oh, we're not going to be building any more um, <laughs> right. thermal coal plants and we're going to be doing, you know, I don't know, wind energy, mm. nuclear, I don't know what else, um, you know, what, mm. yeah, something, solar, um, then there's a problem, right? And, so I think understanding the broader context is important, understanding sort of where in the demand cycle this thing is, then understand, and having a good handle on valuation and what, what I guess the current valuation is and what the future valuation is going to be is is also important. All of that to me is very hard. And if I steer clear of this, so I don't really know what the answer would be. Is it, is it a contrarian investment? I like the question, but I don't have any definitive answer. Mm. I think that's fair. I think we just need a little bit careful too because there's no real you know, significant price fall on those stocks because of the decision by BlackRock. So it's absolutely the right thinking, which is if everyone's running away from something, should I buy? They're running away from it, but it hasn't yet caused any price activity. I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy just because BlackRock's selling. What I would do is buy if BlackRock's selling caused a price fall that was enough to make it a contrarian play. So just think, think about that. Uh, just, just you know, uh, the right thinking but not yet at least the right conditions, even if it was worth doing, which I'm not, I'm with Doc. I don't think it's necessarily worth doing. Um, but, you know, if it is, you want to wait till the price actually does fall as a result and falls by a meaningful amount. A couple of percent's not going to turn a, an otherwise unattractive idea into a contrarian one. Any more on that, mate? No, I think that's, that's good. We covered it. Beautiful. Mate, I've got a question, and the question comes from, you know what, I don't even know who this question is from. I, we don't have a name on it. So if this is your question, my apologies for... Uh, for, for I think it might be Liam, but anyway. He says, Hi, Scott. Trust you are well. Uh, I'm a Motley Fool follower via Pro, Discovery, and Extreme Opportunities. Thank you. I have become a fan of Nearmap. Accordingly, I'm concerned that it is now one of the top 10 shorted stocks in Australia. Do you have any wisdom on the short attack? Now, let's define our terms for listeners who aren't familiar. When you buy a stock in the parlance, in the horrible jargon that investors tend to use or the finance industry uses, that's called going long. You want the stock to go up. If you are a short seller, the opposite of long is short, of course, you are hoping the stock goes down and you will make money if the price falls. So what the questioner is saying, I think it's lame, is, hey, if the, if the share price is going to go down, or at least if people are betting on it going down, should I be worried? Because someone, a lot of people, are placing bets to say, we think the next direction, or at least the long-term direction or the medium-term direction, is the share price is lower in the future than it is today. Should I be concerned? Should I be worried? Should I do something as a result? Doc, you know Nearmap. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what it does and then give us a view on whether or not we should be worried about the shorters jumping into the business. Yeah, so Nearmap is basically a mapping company. So what it does is it basically flies planes at at a relatively low altitude. So it's not like satellite mapping. So they're flying planes at a relatively low altitude with high-resolution cameras taking pictures. Mm -hmm. And then they have software that basically stitches these pictures and allows people to actually use these maps to make decisions. So that could Pretty be... Pretty cool, count. right? Yeah, that's very cool. You, you know, it allows them to... You know, <coughs> so they would have 3D type of maps and it allows, you know, councils to, for example, make decisions about, you know, whether a new building permit is to be issued, whether trees right. need to be cut, what, you know, or if uh, a solar company wants to install solar roofs, it'll be useful to, for example, estimate how much, uh, how big the solar roof should be. Right, right, right. Um, Measuring or, land for real estate agents, that kind yeah, of Yeah, like, yep. you know, land or a mining company. So, Various types of urban and you know not even urban like even rural needs for example yeah, if right. you want to use it for agriculture planning and things like that although most.
most of the stuff there, I, you know, they, they do very targeted mapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? So they're not going around mapping all of Australia. They would map, <laughs> they map yeah. inhabited or use, used land. Right. Um, so that's what they do. And then they have software around this. This is then this basically they sell as a software as a service to um, to businesses, mm. right? So um, companies that you know, like for example, if I'm a solar installer, I might use um, uh, NearMap software to help me make my decisions, and and for that I'd basically pay a subscription fee, much like you know you'd pay a subscription fee for using say zero software for your accounting. Right, right, right. So that it's a relatively simple business. It's been around in Australia for a long time. It has done. Uh, it's it's got market leadership in what it does in Australia. It's 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 Australian business is profitable, and the basic idea was that they are going to take what they do here and try to replicate that success in a much larger American market, mm. uh, which would be at least fifteen times larger than that. And and that's what they've been yep. trying to do for the last several years, trying to grow there. They've got good traction in that, or at least appears that they've mm. got good traction there in terms of revenue growth and so on, attracting customers. Um, Problem is profits haven't yet turned up, and that seems yeah. to be the crux of the short case. <laughs> Yeah, so the short case really is one needs to, you know, look at a couple of different things here. Like, so the, this business has been around for a while, but it's a billion dollar plus market cap right now. I'm just again saying that off the top of my head, but I'm pretty close, I think. Yep. Um, and it doesn't generate a profit. It is might be uncommon in Australia for a business with a $1 billion market cap to not <laughs> generate profit, but it's pretty common. Like a $1 billion business, I could even close my hand, like my eyes and basically say in, in, in the American market would not be generating profit. Right. Largely because those businesses would be in a sort of a growth phase. And, and it's interesting here to remember like the, the business model, right? It's, it's a software as a service business model. Mm. And therefore, it knows how many of its customers is likely, you know, based on historical data, it'll know that, you know, well, you know, maybe I'm going to retain 90% of my customers next year um, based on, again, the information it has on the billing. Mm. That gives it a lot of revenue certainty in the sense that, you know, it probably knows that 90% of my current revenue is going to be available next year. Right. And therefore, it can decide to spend up um, to, you know, expand its market share. And, in a way, you think about it this way: you, if you know what an average customer's lifetime is, because you know what the retention rate is, you can therefore decide how much you want to spend trying to acquire those customers. And it's really, uh, it's a land grab type of mode that they're in. The idea would be: I'm going to be in the land grab. I'm going to try to acquire as many customers as I can. People are going to get very used to mm. using my software. Their soft, like if if I am a company and I, if and I work this company. When I said this, I mean near maps software into my workflow. Mm. It takes a lot of effort to actually remove yeah, stuff right. from the workflow, right? right if right. if once you're there, you're kind of not going anywhere, right? Yeah, like if your business is really reliant on using these maps to make decisions, are you really going to go and switch it to something else and then rework the workflow? You know, or rather, would you go around trying to grow your business because that's what, you know? It, it's a question of what your expertise is. If your expertise is growing your solar business, mm. you're going to be doing that and not really worry about you're going to nickel and diming on on the software right. as long as the software is doing its job. Well, that's it, right? Even if another one is as good or even slightly better, the, the, the hassle of changing is just too hard. It's just the hassle of changing is too hard. It's right. not necessary and it's not your core expertise, yep, right? Yep. And it's hard because of this, all these touch points you might have in mm-hmm. the process. So so the, the company Nearmap knows that. And the, because the company Nearmap knows that, it's going to really spend on two things. One, acquiring customers and B, staying ahead. 
Mm. Right, staying ahead basically means having you know the richest maps and you know re- right, frequently right. doing yeah. the mapping, improving its software, making the software more utilitarian, mm. and and so on. So that's what the business is doing. And 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 then I guess from the shorts point of view, they might say, well, look at this business; it's not profitable. It's you know, and if you look at other sort of multiples, they might say, well, you know, this is pretty expensive. If you look at something like an enterprise value to sales type of multiple, which is pretty commonly used in uh, in the VC world. Right. And they might think, well, you know, the valuation might come down. And you know what? They might be right on the in some time frame. Yeah, yeah. And if they're right, they're going to make some money. Mm-hmm. If they're wrong, they're going to lose money. Right. If we as long investors, and, and, and I'm just talking from, you know, because we have this recommended across multiple services, but I'm talking from the yeah. services where I have the stock recommended. We should say the Multiful owns some shares of Nearmap too. And, and Multiful owns some uh, shares of Nearmap in, in a re- our real money portfolio services, mm-hmm. for example. So in... in from my point of view, I'm looking out five years and saying, well, you know, if this business can continue doing this uh, over five years and it's trying to do this, what it has done successfully in Australia, in the US, maybe it can become five times larger than it is currently, mm. right? And I'm, I'm using five as a number. Uh, while you could basically say, well, the American market is probably 15, 20 times larger than the Australian market, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe I'm, I'm actually, I'm lowballing here and saying, well, maybe it can do five times. If it can get right. to that stage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If it can get to that stage, at that point, it could potentially be generating a lot of cash. Because remember, mm. if it, all it needs to do at that point is pull back on its marketing spend, and it should actually become a lot. Its its growth rate at that point, of course, slows down. Yeah, like it, it might look more like a Woolies at that point, but it'll be a very cash generative business at that point, right? And and here's the other thing, right? At at you know five x market size, it still has a lot of opportunity in the US. Then there's a Jason Canadian market, there's a Jason, you know, Mexican market, there's opportunities in Europe. Right. So the US isn't even the last potential market for it, right? Yeah. So I mean there's a lot of opportunities. What we are looking at is the opportunity and we are okay. We are not trying to really pin down the valuation because it's very hard to pin down a valuation for a company like this. Yeah. Because, you know, how do you pin down the valuation for a company that actually does not generate free cash flow today, <laughs> right? You're really counting on the free cash flow in the future. And here, I think what, what Ray Dalio says, which, which you talked about earlier, comes in handy because if the interest rates are really low, mm. uh, you know, the discount rate should apply for the free cash, you know, the cash today and the cash, you know, in the future. Mm. So, you know, the difference between that is not that much, whereas it will be it's more significant if the, um, you know, the interest rates were much higher. Then you would, you'd, you know, you'd, the cash today would be <laughs> worth a lot more. <laughs> yeah, right. so, so companies are taking advantage of this and, and trying to grow their business and become dominant. So I think, you know, it depends on what your thesis is. Mm. And I can see how one could short it and hope right. to make some money. Um, yeah. So look, there's a this is largely valuation short. Other shorts are done on fraud reasons or other things, competition. This is almost exactly a pure valuation short. To the best of our knowledge, we don't have necessarily inside information on this one, but decent chance that's what's going on. Um, for us, we think over the long term, and look, we can be wrong, right? We we will be wrong from time to time. We're wrong. I've, I've been wrong at Share Advisor over nine years, about four times out of ten. So I'm right six times out of ten, and that's delivered us, and not for the sake of bragging, but for the sake of justifying the what we do and why we do it. Um, that's given us a significantly market-beating result over that time period. Um, and that's largely because we know that being right more than wrong, and when the average winner goes up more than the average loser goes down, that's a recipe for a good result. So we will be wrong from time to time. We may well be wrong on Nearmap, but our view is over the long term, so five years-ish plus, um, we expect the, value, the business to be worth a lot more. Now, the shorters may think it'll never be worth more. They may be thinking that in the short term, they might get a chance to sell it 10, 20, 30, 40% cheaper because the shares just are volatile. And so maybe they're just playing a pure 
you know, trading game of some description. We don't know. I wouldn't say we don't care exactly because it is worth knowing the, the bear case sometimes, the short case sometimes, to be careful about our own bull case to make sure we're getting it right. Um, but we're not playing that game either in terms of the absolute movement or even the medium-term movement. We're focused solely on the long-term, mate. All right, let's move on. That question was from Peter, I believe, by the way. So thank you, Peter, for that question. The next one's from Chris. Chris says, Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm loving the new mailbag episodes and even more when you pump out two per week. Guess what, Chris? Good news. This Sunday, what are we doing, Doc? We're doing a mailbag special. A special mailbag episode just because you asked nicely, Chris. And also, possibly, we already had a plan, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll say it's because you asked nicely because, you know, we like to make our listeners happy. So, Chris, hopefully you will enjoy it. And listeners, if you do like our mailbag episodes, please have a listen. If you don't, then sorry, and you can skip over that one. But hopefully, we've got some good questions and some good answers. So, stay tuned, Chris, for that one. In the meantime, though, he says, I'm wanting to invest in an emerging market Asian ETF. ETF being exchange-traded fund, of course. So, a, a, an investment with one click that gives you exposure to a group of companies or a, or a geography. He says, I'm looking at three options. The first is a, a Vanguard fund, which is Asia X Japan. The next one is an Asia 50 ETF. So, Asia 50. Think about the ASX 200 as a kind of a parallel. Asia 50. Or an Asia Technology Tigers ETF, so tech-focused, and wanted to hear from you on how you compare them or what you would recommend in your reasoning and thoughts. Cheers, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and as always, full on. Well, thank you, Chris. Very kind. Good question, and thanks for the multiple seasonal greetings and best wishes there, mate, and Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We are here for the first time in the studio this year, so uh, Happy New Year. Doc, if I, if I was to categorize these, and Asia X Japan feels like a, the, the broadest possible Asian kind of ETF, a bit, a bit like the All Lords here or, or some sort of kind of global equivalent. If I was to think about the Asia 50 ETF, I guess I'm thinking about maybe the ASX 50 or the ASX 100, but purely for Asia. And if I think about the, the Technology Tigers ETF, that kind of feels to me akin to kind of a, an Asian NASDAQ or something. So I, I guess, firstly, if I got that right, it kind of helps me think about the options here. And, and secondly, what do you think in terms of those investment opportunities? Yeah, Captain, I think, I think that's, a, it's, that's a good analogy. Um, and, and, and thanks, Chris, mate, for this question. This is, this is an interesting question. I'll just preface by saying one thing. Like, I mean, what works for anybody else, uh, you know, it's, again, personal circumstances. And I'm going to talk in very general terms. Good advice. From, uh, um, again, expressing sort of what I think is actually from my point of view, at least to 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 a large extent, and then again, sort of what we have recommended to our members. But again, um, mm. you need to consider your personal circumstances, and this is by no means a you know personal advice. So, with uh, of all these ones, we have recommended uh, you know Asia, the Asia ETF, the Technology Tigers ETF in extreme opportunities, largely because uh, for a couple of reasons, it takes advantage of the. Uh, the young demographic sort of available across the Asian countries, it takes advantage of the tech. And there's, a, there's, there's some differences between the tech there and the tech we see because, you mm. know, they sort of, one way to think about this is many Asian countries sort of, you know, keep us, don't have the infrastructure that we have, right? Mm. And therefore, a lot of things that they do um, sort of skips this thing of about, you know, infrastructure improvement requirement, right? So, I mean, they do a lot more on online because it's not as pleasurable to go to the shops, for example, right? Whereas here, you know, you can go to the shops easily because you can drive on the road and it's not going to be, but if you want to go to the go to shops in Bangalore, you might be actually traveling for like five kilometers for like, you know, three hours, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's not the same. You can't go for a coffee to the mm-hmm. shop uh, uh, for, from that point of view. There's, so that. Be, there's that problem. So, so I think a lot of things that happen, um, 
their technology advancement in mobile, for example, is pretty significant. So if you take advantage of that, then the third thing I think I want to point out here is while, while Asia is, is a growth uh, engine as such, because again, you know, they have the large growing economies there, um, the because of the trade war that was going on between the US and China, which is currently on pause, a lot of the valuations were at least viewed on a comparative basis, cheaper. And when I say comparative basis, I mean, if you compare similar tech companies and look at similar growth levels, uh, opportunities, and so on, if you compare that, then it looks like, you know, these were significantly cheaper. So that has been the rationale. Some of that rationale might apply to the other broader broader Asia ETFs uh, as well. Right, right. But, but you know, my preference has been to, to focus on the cap capital light sort of businesses that these mm. a lot of these Asia ETF ones would have the Asia Technology Tigers ETF ones would have if you're looking at just like uh, the Asia 50 mm. you'd, you'd get exposure to things like banks and insurance companies and so on <laughs> but one of the things I find difficult with that is that you really need to understand what's going on in terms of regulations and so on I mean if you have a general view of economic growth and that's going to translate into stock market growth uh, then that's fine mm. But, you know, like, I mean, there's a lot of bad debt, for example, in Indian banks, right? So before buying, uh, say, an ETF that has a lot of Indian banks in it, I'd really think about it. I'm just using that as an example. Um, so it's just a little harder, I find it, whereas I find it a little bit, you know, again, that might just be because of my preference. But I just find the capital-like nature of some of the businesses in this uh, um, Asia technology ETF more appealing. And and good diversification as well, right? If you you know if you want to own banks and stuff, well, we have a lot of banks and high quality banks, right? And mm. presumably, a lot of people also own them. So you're just basically adding banking exposure and insurance exposure in other sectors, uh, other countries. Do you want that again? It's this is a question that's hard to answer, but I find the tech exposure to be interesting, and therefore, you know, my my preference has always been on this uh, Asia Tigers ETF. It, just a question, I guess, to, to kind of tease that a little bit is is that. How much of that is about Asia and how much of that is just your general preference for tech? Is it is it a case of just simply another version of your kind of preference of US investing and Australian investing where you're looking for these types of companies or is it Asia specific in this case? Um, no, so I mean, it, it, it is, okay, so I, I do have a strong preference of these sort of businesses mm. and therefore that is definitely one of the reasons why I actually went looking. But, you know, like I really admire some of the companies on that list. Like, you right, know, right. you get exposure to a company like Alibaba. That Alibaba's gross merchandise volume is significantly larger than, for example, Amazon's. Right. Right. So, and Alibaba's an innovator. So, so it's that sort of uh, rationale that there's a lot of innovators on this list that um, on the Asia tech uh, tech 50 ETF. Mm -hmm. But yes, there's a preference issue there, of course. Um, if there was a way, for example, to, you know, here's the best brands out there in Asia that I could buy. I haven't seen an ETF that actually does that. But, you know, like the high quality brands, yeah, yeah, yeah. for example, yeah. of Asia. I haven't seen something like that yet. But Fascinating. All right, let's move on. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I've got a question from Luke. Luke says, I have a question for the podcast, which is the right thing in the right place. So you've done well, Luke. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'd love to be able to say that I love the podcast, but here we go. That is entirely dependent on whether you answer my question. I'd also be willing to rate and review the podcast if my question is answered. After all, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, I'm not sure I want to answer this question, Doc. I don't like being held well, to ransom here. I don't no, like no, being. No. Yeah, there's no. There's, it's just quid pro quo, right? Yeah, so no, 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 I don't like. It. But all you got to here's here's the thing. You don't get to make the. You don't get to come on our podcast and make these demands. 
but you can also demand that <laughs> he's going to put in a review. I mean, I mean, you know, a good review, an honest review. It's fine. Are you sure? I'm, I'm fine. As long as it gives us proof that he's done it. All right, deal. Luke, we are going to, because we're decent people, Doc's a better bloke than I am. Because we're decent people, I'm going to trust you on this one, mate. Don't make a habit of it, quite frankly, because otherwise we will come looking for you. But uh, well, just this once, we'll let you get away with it. If you do as you say, as you promise, I'm sure you're a man of your word. I'm sure you wouldn't like us to ridicule you for weeks on this podcast if you don't do it. Just remember, we've got the bigger megaphone here, dude. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Well, maybe I'm kidding. I'm not sure. You've got seven days, Luke, is all I'm saying. All right. Let's answer his, let's answer his question. I, I, I like the chutzpah, mate. I, I like the, uh, well, I, yeah, you, you get you get some points for, uh, for, for having a go. All right. He says, during one of your recent podcasts, I was shocked to discover that one, with most of the non-comsec brokers in Australia, clients don't actually own their shares, and two, theoretically, the entire portfolio could be lost if the broker implodes. I have a large portfolio with IG. You mentioned in the podcast that brokers should be registered with SIPIC and FINRA. I contacted IG and received ambiguous responses as to whether they comply with these regulations. How can I be absolutely certain that my portfolio won't evaporate if my broker ever implodes? Should I resist the allure of $10 trades and go back to Comsec, despite their terrible platform and customer service? Thanks, Luke. I gotta say, I actually haven't minded Comsec's platform or customer service. I'm I've been a customer for ages. I actually I actually quite like it. I, I do recommend Comsec to most people as a starting point because it's pretty thorough, pretty comprehensive, and I've got to say, so far I've actually found the customer service pretty good. But maybe I've been lucky. Um, Luke, here's so two things. Um, I want to just just slowly step this through. We we may have confused you, and if we have, it's probably my fault, not Doc's. But um, the the Finra and the SIPIC stuff apply to US traded shares. So let's start there. Let me talk about US traded shares for just a second. In the US, you almost can't get these days shares in your own name. They're almost always in what the US called the street name or the broker's name, and they're held in trust on your account. Now, that does mean if the worst came to worst, you could lose your investment, but then that applies to every other US investor as well. I mean, look, it's never happened, well, at least not on a big scale, and because, well, not that the broker hasn't imploded, but the SIPIC is an insurance program designed exactly and specifically to avoid that sort of outcome. So if the broker does come to grief, um, the insurance program they have is supposed to look after those investors who are covered by it. And so if you're buying US shares, we absolutely, absolutely, absolutely recommend you find someone who is SIPIC uh, covered and FINRA, a member of FINRA. So that's the first thing. That's for US shares. Um, that doesn't apply in Australia. In Australia, we have a system called CHESS. It's computerized holding something, something, something. I could look it up, but it just it just is what it is. Um, CHESS does put shares in your own name if you are what they call CHESS sponsored. Now, if you own, if you buy shares through Comsec and through most other brokers, most Australian um, domicile brokers, um, the usual suspects, NABtrade and Comsec and Dragon Direct, whoever else, um, these these kind of these mobs are are you, know, you do get CHESS sponsored shares now. Chess means the shares are absolutely in your name no matter what happens to the broker. So the Chess is a third-party, effectively, share register system. Um, that let, So if you know if I was to take my shares from Comsec and trade them through NABtrade, for example, um, I would keep the same Chess registration. I would simply swap my broker across from Comsec to, to NAB, uh, but I would keep my own Chess shareholding as it is currently. And that's the beauty of the Australian Chess system. Um, I'm biased and probably... I'm directly biased because I'm Australian and we live here and we like it. Secondly, we're probably also biased because we're used to it. So it kind of just feels like the most natural way to do it. Uh, but it is, I think, to my mind, the, the best 
investor protection you could ask for because it simply can't be taken away from you. But that is if you are chess registered or chess sponsored. I would never, ever, ever buy Australian shares that weren't chess sponsored. Um, the chance of anything happening is really, really low. But mate, for, for, to save five or 10 bucks a trade, um, that's about the cheapest insurance you're going to find. If I if I know for sure that we're paying an extra five or 10 bucks a trade, I can never have those shares taken off me, at least for uh, a broker becoming insolvent or something else. That's just, that's just the easiest thing in the world. Now, maybe it never happens. It probably never happens. Um, but just for me, it's a no-brainer. So I would always have a chess-sponsored broker. I don't know about IG, no idea. Um, but as you say, some brokers have in the past gone broke. Now, they normally do leverage brokers or ones that are dealing in options or other derivatives. So your plain vanilla broker, unlikely to have that happen, but it is possible, right? So I personally would never buy or sell Australian shares without using a chess-sponsored broker because I just, it's just not worth it to me. I, you, couldn't, you couldn't give me cheap enough brokerage to make it worth my while. Um, so that's just me. Um, so US shares, absolutely FINRA and SIPIC sponsored for sure. Australia, make sure you're chess sponsored is how I do it. How about you, Doc? Yeah, so I think like if anybody has significant sums of money, given that you know there's, if you don't have any like insurance scheme, like which is what we have, for example, if you're buying in the US mm. brokers, there's there's uh, the SEC basically provides that uh, that guarantee. Then yep. without the lack of with the lack of that, then I mean it doesn't make sense to have substantial sums of money in effectively uninsured, unprotected accounts, right? So in that case, it makes sense to actually own the chess sponsored. Yep. Account. Now, if you're owning it as a mix of something else and it's not a significant amount of money and then the part of the proportion is, um, you know, is protected, then maybe it's 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 okay. But I mean, again, for any significant sums of money, it seems like this is a risk not worth taking. Uh, all that said, I mean, I'll, I'll point out that the risk of brokers going out of business is pretty low. But yeah. again, it's one of those things when do you really want your money to disappear? So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's good advice. Mate, we're almost done, but we've got time for one more question. And as I said, mailbag episode. Pretty exciting. First mailbag episode of 2020, the first time Doc's back in the studio. So I'm pretty excited in general. But as I said, we do have time for one question. And the lucky, unlucky, <laughs> not sure, questioner is Liam, who hit us up on, I think it might be even Instagram, mate. Or maybe it's Facebook. Either way, it's a Zuck product. Sorry. Zuck product. <laughs> he says, hey, Doc and Scott. Scott usually gets first mention, but I thought I'd switch it up. Liam, I've got a long memory, mate. Just uh, just remember who answers who 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 asks the questions around here, dude. You can uh, buy him and suck up the doc if you want, but uh, this may be the last time you're on the podcast. He says, "Quick, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year." Thank you, mate. And you too. Hope 2020 brings us many more special mailbag episodes. Well, we'll certainly start in style. I've been wondering recently about private investing or venture capital investing. As a retail investor, I haven't come across any plausible private investing opportunities. As normally they're asking for, he says, plus, 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 dollar sign, dollar sign. I assume that means a lot of money. Uh, So I'll say very large. Normally they're asking for very large investments to start up their businesses. I was wondering if there are any publicly listed companies or ETFs that give exposure to private equity, almost like an LIC for private companies, or if this is even possible with all the laws. Apologies if it's a silly question, but would love your thoughts. Full on, Liam. Liam, as I said, mate, just uh, just be careful about who you're sucking up to here because I asked the questions, but... Given I've asked the question, Doc, I'll ask you to answer it. Liam, mate, this is a wonderful question. I love it, actually. It's it's, it's a good question to ask. Because he mentioned you first or because you actually like the question? What? Maybe a little bit of both. (laughs) (laughs) So um, here's the thing. Um, I I don't want it to sound like I'm doing advertisement, but I want to point out this, that 
if like for, as an example like what the type of companies we for example are looking for in extreme opportunities um, on the ASX mm. they are by and large what i would call vc like investments right because many of these companies would be small effectively they would be vc companies um in the us because you know it'll be hard to list them um some of the us companies actually come here to in a show to list because you know it's easier to list at the, at lower market cap right you need to be like you know billion plus market cap or something like that to be listed on nasdaq so one could get vc like investments on a public market like the asx um and yeah, I mean, there will be higher risk as as would any um, uh, private investment, mm. uh, but you'd get a little bit more liquidity. Uh, and when I say little, what, what, I mean when I say a little bit more, what I mean is that you know many a times what would happen is there'll be founders and owners and insiders who own a lot of the stocks, and therefore the liquidity actually. I mean, the company might be a bit, you know hundred million dollars, but actually maybe only fifty million dollars of the stock actually is available uh, on the market, mm. right? So it's it, but still you, it, there is this opportunity to sell and buy every day if you want. Not right. I'm saying that you should do it, but <laughs> I mean it's it's different from owning stocks in or owning shares in a private entity, which mm-hmm. basically you. Need need to find a buyer and if the buyer does not materialize you, <laughs> you you don't have an active price every day and things like that so there's not a there's not a market every day that's open to buy so that's that's number one <laughs> number two is that I'll, I'll point this out that in terms of private investments the rules around being a sophisticated investor which most of the time involves you know how much money you have got and things like that yeah. um, come into play your accountant basically needs to write you a letter mm-hmm. um, certifying some things and then you can become an, an accredited I guess it's called accredited investor there's mm-hmm. a process behind it there's slightly different processes in Australia and the US but it's remarkably similar at, at a higher level mm. um, yeah, I mean, so that there's one thing, but the market for private investors has a uh, private investing has opened up, and there are a number of places and forums where you can actually buy shares into these private businesses. Seed Invest is one of them, for example. Mm. Now I've looked at Seed Invest in the past myself. I've never actually made an investment because it's, <laughs> you know, you read the documents; it's pretty thin sometimes. So, you know, sometimes even it's detail. You really don't know what's going on. You, you, it's, you don't have the the regularity of information flow. You don't have the um, the market, you know, every day available to you know buy and sell shares and things like that. Right, so right. it's a lot of issues. It's just harder to invest uh, in this type of thing. And you know, frankly, I, I mean, while it is interesting and exciting, as I said, it's exciting. Exciting to in in as a as a student of business is very exciting mm. to actually look into it. Yeah. It yeah. it really requires another leap to invest in it, <laughs> but, and I have personally not done it. So I mean, again, it depends on interest, you know, risk tolerances and things like that that one needs to consider. What is interesting though is that many of these platforms that aggregate private investments actually would allow you to invest using a credit card, <laughs> which I find oh, very interesting yeah. is that you can you could you could buy shares using credit. Oh, card. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> it's like buying jeans. <laughs> um, oh man! Uh, that makes it you can fund bloody gambling accounts with credit cards. Right. So it's not it's not any different. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, pre- presumably you pay off your credit card debt and oh, then it's okay. Oh, um, I'm just talking about the seamlessness <laughs> of the transaction yeah, right. in that sense. Right, 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 right. That you could buy it off <laughs> using a credit card. Oh, God, um, you have to pay it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> um, then the final thing I'll point out is that many of these things actually have a decent enough minimum investment lot requirement, which could go from anywhere between ten thousand US dollars to up up to right. like twenty five, thirty thousand. It's a significant commitment okay. that you're making. Uh, it's a decent credit card limit. It's yeah. A, <laughs> yeah, you decent. You need a decent credit card limit to actually buy it. But so th- those are things. Right. Again, so. A lot of things are possible. Yep. Whether or not people want to do it is really another question. If if somebody, you know, as I said, I look into it because I, I, I find it interesting. Mm. Um, but as I said, I've not done one yet. Uh, I know of some people who have done it, but, you know, that's different. Yep. I, look, I got a couple. So I'll say, I'll say two quick things. I think, frankly, well, three. I think credit card funding is just awful. Um <sighs> It's just money, Captain. Come on. What, what form of money does it matter? Write any credit card number for me and I'll take it. Well, so, but, no, why? Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, I mean, I mean, at a high level, right, they're basically saying they're making it easy for you to yes. buy the shares. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so look, here's, the, here's my thing. I, the de- definition of sophisticated investor that keeps most of us out of private equity is probably anachronistic, right? The fact you have to have X dollars worth of income or X dollars worth of assets. Frankly, this is asset inflation. You could, you could own a house in Sydney and almost qualify as a sophisticated investor. Um, you know, you just need to be a little bit careful. I think I'm all for democratization of investing. That's exactly what The Motley Fool is about. That being said, there are rules about disclosure and prospectuses and stuff for the protection of investors. When you take part in some of this stuff, you are basically waiving those rights and I don't know that that's great for most investors. Yes, we want to be open to new things in the on the market. Um, frankly, you know, we, I don't think we need more people taking much more risk with new products that otherwise don't need to buy. It just it feels to me like a bit of a bridge too far. Second thing I would say, by the way, and this is probably the bigger one, is if you're a decent VC or sorry, different the decent startup, you're not going to a crowdsourced funding platform to get your money as a first port of call, right? You're going to the big guys because you want to be part of the. Andreessen Horowitz's or the SoftBanks or the whoever else is of the world because you've heard about them, you know they've got the money, you want to be part of that. By the time you get to a crowdsourced platform, I'm not entirely sure, Doc, you may have a different view, but I'm not entirely sure that that's the <laughs> that you're getting the kind of top-grade, first-class quality of, of potential startups, are you? I mean, they're not going there as a, as a starting point. They're trying to go somewhere else first. Either the big guys have passed on them for some reason or they couldn't get the appointments or it just feels to me like it might be, are we, are we kind of getting the dregs of what's left over? Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely an interesting question. I mean, um, are you getting the leftovers? Are you getting people who are basically, you know, don't want VCs to basically interfere and therefore, right. um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's most of the type of things that I've seen interesting are, you know, some crazy scientific discovery that somebody's trying to commercialize. <laughs> um, um, then I've seen things like, you know, uh, genetically... They're doing mo- time travel on there. Well, <laughs> not yet seen, <laughs> but I've seen genetically modified food, genetically modified, you know, okay. or... or or things like you know meatless uh, meat—that's an oxymoron, but you know that sort of thing. <laughs> Fake meat is what it's called. Or even things Sorry, like you Andrew. know somebody's doing breweries, uh, somebody's doing a new coffee chain. So all sorts of things are there. Um, <laughs> oh. you, you know what I mean? Like I mean, again, it's it's one of those things which I guess if you're interested, you look into it. Whether or not it is uh, something that is meaningfully wealth creating yeah, right. for the average individual or average investor. And by no means, I mean to say that Luke is average. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's like my normal just, people is like it, us. Yeah, like, yeah. Is, it, is it for us? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I have, as I said, I've not made one myself because, you know, it sounds fascinating <laughs> to, you know, just say that I've made yeah. private investments, but yeah. 
you know, is it important? Is it necessary? I don't know. <laughs> right, right. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the brewery there, and I, uh, for those who are familiar with the quote, if you maybe you, you invest in a uh, crowdsourced platform, you can't organise a capital raising in a brewery. So uh, to change the change the metaphor. All right, mate. Before we wrap up, I've got some exciting news for our listeners and listeners who are particularly fond of you, because our boffins. You're looking surprised. You're not, you know I'm going to say this. The boffins at the office have put together an order page and some pricing specially for our Motley Fool Money listeners. So this is a bit of an ad. Put the big flashing lights up there. If you have listened this far on this podcast, you're probably getting something of value out of hopefully something I said and hopefully a lot of what Doc has said. And if you want to join Doc's service, Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, we've got a pretty good deal for you. If you go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast, that's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. You can get a year's worth of Doc's recommendations. Forget this, only $79. Your first year of membership of EO, only 79 bucks. I don't know about you, but that's better than a VC investment for me with any platform. So come on, come and join Doc at EO. He'd love to join you. Come and say good day. Join the service, get the best of his advice. A new recommendation coming out in only a few weeks' time. That's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and join for only 79 bucks for your first year. That's all right, isn't it? That sounds like a good deal to me. You'd, you'd approve? Oh, well, you know, I, I would say that, you know, we should charge a lot more, like I'd like to say. <laughs> but, but hey, but it's okay. If 79 is going to make uh, uh, our members or our listeners happy, that, that like that'd be. $1.50 a week? That sounds too cheap. You know, it's less than a coffee. That's Tell the you what, if you can't, if you can't you find just your way me, to join EO, me cheap. fool.com.au <laughs> forward slash EO podcast. Give Doc some ammunition to, to show the rest of the business how much more he should be charging, but you can get in before the price goes up. It may not go up. It probably will. Doc will certainly be uh, <laughs> trying to justify it to the boss. So join us, fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and get a year's worth. That's at least 12 monthly recommendations from Dr. Anirban Mahanti and the team at EO. All right. After that, mate, we're done. We are done. At least for two more days. That does wrap us up. But before we go, don't forget you can subscribe and you should to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating, especially you, Luke. I'm looking at you right now. The clock is ticking, mate. You've got seven days or I'm going to go to town on you in next week's podcast. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but please give us a rating. Leave us some stars. Tell your friends. We're sure they could use a little foolish straight talk too. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.